You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We're going to be looking at James 4, verses 1 through 10, which I entitled, Drawing Near to God. And James begins in James 4, verse 1 through 3, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Last week, we, we sort of talked about how there was this class struggle within this church or with, among the group of people that James is writing to, that there were the rich who were sort of mistreating the poor and showing partiality to one another. You know, when they would have meetings, they would say, okay, since you're a wealthy, prominent individual, why don't you take a seat here at the front and then make the poor people sit in the back? And so I think what happened, what's happening here is that James in chapter 4 is sort of turning the tables now and pointing it at those who are poor and saying, you guys have the opposite problem. You're not showing partiality, but you're envying those who are rich. And so he's pointing out that a lot of the arguments and quarrels that are breaking out among you are based on jealousy and envy, wanting what the rich have. And so James launches into sort of this talk about how those who are poor among them should view their situation. He confronts them in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Pretty harsh language here. And this word that he uses here is a little odd. I mean, don't you know that friendship with the world? I mean, in the English translation, the word world doesn't mean anything negative. And yet it seems like James is using it in sort of this derogatory way that it has bad connotations. Now, if you study this word world, it actually has a variety of different meanings. And it's the Greek word cosmos. In some cases, it can mean adornment. For example, in 1 Peter 3.3, the Apostle Peter says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. He's, he's a he's exhorting women not only to be careful about their appearance, but also to worry about their character too. And he uses this word adornment, which is actually the word, it comes from the root word cosmos. So this word adornment in some contexts can actually mean a harmonious arrangement or to adorn oneself. It's actually where we get the word cosmetic from. And so it means an orderly appearance. You know, when you look in the mirror and you see that your, your face is not orderly, that means that it's um, the opposite of cosmion. It also means, in some cases, cosmos or universe. For example, you think about John 17, verse 5. Jesus is speaking to the Father and says, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So clearly in the context here, he's talking about the creation of the universe. Also, it can refer to humanity. Think about the famous verse in John, John 3.16, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall have, shall not perish, but have eternal life. So again, in the context here, he's talking about the world as in people in the world. And finally, he refers to, sometimes the New Testament authors use this word cosmos to talk about a world system or a system of values. For example, in 1 John 2, verse 15 through 17, the Apostle John gives us really the most complete definition of this world system. He says, Do not love the world nor the things that it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they're from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So there are a few elements here that comprise the world system. And what we're told in 1 John 5 verse 19 later on in the same book is that the mind behind this system of values is actually God's enemy. He says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So one of the things that God's enemy does, Satan, is he tries to ensnare us by creating a set of values that lure us away from our affection from God. And John details that in the passage we read just earlier in chapter 2. First of all, he talks about the craving for everything that we see. So this is talking about the desire to possess beautiful things or people. You know, when we get a nice, beautiful car, or we have lots and lots of possessions and money, those things could fall into the category of the craving for the things that we see. You know, for some of us, it's possessing people. We, we think that if we can date somebody who's attractive, that that somehow reflects positively on our own self-image. But I think for the most part in our culture today, this takes the form of materialism, which is interesting. If you look at the Cambridge definition of materialism, first of all, it says, as it pertains to philosophy, the theory that physical matter is the only reality and that everything, including thought, Feeling, mind, and will can be explained in terms of matter and physical phenomena. So, from a philosophical worldview, what it's talking about is a philosophical materialism. That is, everything that we see is comprised of natural things. It's a denial of the supernatural. The second definition is interesting. The theory or attitude that physical well-being and worldly possessions constitute the greatest good and highest value in life. I would say that that fits our culture to the T. That most people that you encounter possess this value, that the greatest good or value in life is to possess as much money and as many possessions as you possibly can. Or three, the preoccupation with or emphasis on material objects comforts and considerations as opposed to spiritual or intellectual values. And I think that 
a lot of people in our culture today hold to sort of a philosophical materialism. Most people believe that everything that you see is made up of just natural things. And so the denial of the supernatural leads into this desire to possess things. Because, I mean, if, if all you are is just a sack of, of juices that's flapping around, right? I mean, what does it matter what, what you do with your life? I mean, you might as well enjoy your life as much as you possibly can. Because once you die, that's it. There is no afterlife. There is nothing, there, there, there aren't any supernatural uh, lives that you can live. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that when you talk to a lot of Americans, most people actually associate themselves with Christianity. And yet what's interesting is when you look at their lives, in a lot of ways they are functional atheists. They claim that they believe in God, they, they claim to believe in Christianity, and yet nothing in their life seems to suggest that there's anything beyond this life as they accumulate more and more money and more and more possessions. The other thing that John talks about that is a part of the world system is this craving for physical pleasure. And this includes your obvious run-of-the-mill sensuality, getting high, getting drunk, seeking after sexual experiences. And of course, you know, you see lots of people going after that in, in our culture today. But you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, you know, I don't, I don't get high. I'm not addicted to like black tar heroin. I don't sleep with prostitutes on a regular basis. You know, that may be true, but this also encompasses the desire for living a comfortable life. You know, some of us have sort of oriented our lives around trying to create as many creature comforts as possible. And so that, that's what we want, is we want a comfortable life. We don't want to stretch ourselves or do things that are going to be uncomfortable. For others, it may be hedonism, the desire to have experiences or just pleasure. Um, you know, some of us live for dining experiences. I remember talking to my friend who has a great job, has lots and lots of money, and he doesn't know what to do with all of his money that he has. And so what he, what he really lives for are these incredible dining experiences. And he was telling me about how he went to this uh, famous Michelin star restaurant, three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago called Elenia's. And he said that he ate 10 courses with 10 flights of wine and it cost him $750 without tip. And so, you know, some people live for that kind of hedonistic experience. You know, some of us are like, well, you know, I just only eat seasonal organic. I don't need any processed stuff. Or, you know, some of us, we just refuse to drink domestic beers. We only drink craft beer or handcrafted cocktails, right? And so it's, it's all about having that hedonistic experience, and for some of us, maybe it's the experience of travel, going to exotic places or, you know, seeing concerts. And so this craving of pleasure is something that I think all of us can relate to in some way or another. 
Also, he talks about the pride in our achievements and possessions. It's this desire to stake our identity in our success or the acclaim of other people. You know, we pursue these degrees, we pursue uh, achievement because we think that our colleagues or the people around us are going to be able to pat us on the back and tell us how great we are. Also, it could actually ironically be a pride in our moral fortitude where we look at other people and we judge them and say, well, I don't live materialistically. I don't go out and, you know, have all these different sexual exploits. I live a pretty clean life. And yet, that would fall into the pride of achievement and possessions as well. This, desire, this sense of pride that wells up within us that we're better than other people. So, you might be wondering, okay, what's wrong with these things, right? I mean, after all, What's wrong with having a glass of wine? What's wrong with having a sexual experience? You know what I mean? Like God created sex. He created our nerve endings so that we could experience pleasure. What about the fact that God created us to actually achieve? Think about the Garden of Eden. I mentioned this last week where God told the original humans, I want you to cultivate the land, the garden. And so God built that characteristic within us, this desire to achieve. And on the face of it, none of those things are wrong. The problem is when we take these things that are good and make them ultimately good is when we start to have problems. Where we start trying to derive a sense of significance or a sense of identity from these things that ultimately are never going to fully satisfy us. And all of us, at least on a very basic level, have experienced this before where just the anticipation of getting something new, that new phone, those new pair of shoes, that anticipation is so exciting. And then when we finally get it, we have that sense of euphoria, but moments later it's gone. And so these things, though good, are never fully satisfying. Really, it's important for us to see that it's unwise to invest in something that will ultimately disappear. That's the reason why we should reject the world system. That's the reason why John says that we shouldn't fall in love with the values that God's enemy has set up because the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. You know, you're investing in something that ultimately is bankrupt. Imagine if you found out that your bank failed. It would be really foolish for you to be like, okay, I'm going to deposit some more money into the bank, right? Or to take maybe an example from history, imagine you were living um, in the South during the Civil War. And there were a lot of indications based on, um, you know, things that you're seeing that the Union is probably going to overtake the Confederacy. And so you're sitting there, and you have a decent amount of Confederate money. What are you going to do? You're not going to try to stockpile more Confederate money if you know that the Union will likely overtake the Confederacy. You're going to try to take that money and convert it into something that's going to have value after the war. And in the same way, we can take our money, our time, our resources, our energy— and take that and devote it into something that's going to matter long term. 
Because all of these things, though good that I mentioned, in terms of their overall value in the next life, it's going to be nothing compared to the things that God says possess eternal value. So what are these things? What are these things that have eternal value? I think, first of all, it's knowing God. Investing in your relationship with Him. If this relationship with God is going to actually continue on into the next life, then the hours that you spend learning about His character, learning about His will, listening to Him, all of that's going to translate over into the next life as well. The second thing is loving people. When you think about people who are heading toward retirement age or who are older, hardly do you ever hear these people say stuff like, you know, my biggest regret in life is that I wish I spent more time trying to stockpile money and working on my career. Almost always are they saying, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I regret not taking these opportunities to spend time with my friends and people that I loved. And so when we think about people, because God says that people have this potential for eternal, eternal life through Jesus Christ, people really matter according to God. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to mere mortals Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of an app. But it is immortals with whom we joke, who we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. If you realize the people that you interact with every single day have eternal potentiality, if you saw it that way, then you would value them and your relationships with them over any, anything else. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 19 and 20, that we, when we enter into our heavenly dwelling, that we are going to be met with people who we have impacted for Christ. He says, For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. I'm certain that when we end our lives and we enter into our heavenly dwelling, that we're going to experience a complete paradigm shift where the things that we thought were so valuable here on earth become valueless in comparison to the people that God allowed us to impact. Imagine that scene as you walk into heaven and are greeted by God. And a crowd of people surround you. People, some of whom you've never even met before, expressing gratitude for your investment. Expressing gratitude for the money you contributed that impacted them eternally. That's going to be an amazing day. And it's going to crystallize the kind of value that God places on human beings. Also, we value truth because it is eternal. Think about what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 24 and 25. He says, All people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
We live in a time of uncertainty where people don't know what's right or wrong. People are confused about what they should base their life upon. And yet what God says is He's offered us something that is stable, that's eternal, that is unchanging. And that if we build our lives upon His Word, that we can have this kind of security that nothing else will be able to provide. So, let's ask, what is the price of compromise? I think, first of all, there's a lost love for God. Think about what John says in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, one way to interpret this is that because you love the world, that's an indication that you don't love God. Or that God has withdrawn his love from you because you love the world. But I think a better interpretation is that what happens is as you become more and more consumed with the world and its values, that that leaves little room for your love for God. And that's what happens when we start uh, giving ourselves over to the world's overtures. That it starts to crowd out our affections for God. Also, it neutralizes our effectiveness for God as well. One of the main things that God wants us to do as followers of Christ is to carry out his mission of showing the love of Jesus Christ to people in a lost world. And so when we are preoccupied with the things of the world, when we don't have enough time to serve him and other people, then God is, is unable to carry out his mission here on earth. I know that sounds like an extreme thing that, you know, our unfaithfulness could actually block God from carrying out his purposes. But the Bible teaches that God primarily works through the church, that we are his plan for salvation for the human race. Now, I think Christians who have inwardly made peace with the cosmos often experience certain symptoms. I think, first of all, there's a loss of excitement for the things of God. Where initially we came to Christ, we were super excited about the things of God. I mean, I remember the first year I was walking with the Lord, and it was like everywhere I turned, I felt the presence of God. You know, you'd be, you'd be standing there in the middle of summer, and the sun would be, you know, hitting you, and you're like, oh, it's just like God giving me a, a warm hug or something like that. And I remember like a year into following God, something happened. It was almost like it felt like he sort of withdrew from me. And I realized what happened was I was, I was wrestling with my affections. Where on the one hand, I wanted to follow God, but on the other hand, I wanted to pursue the things of the world. You know, think about what Matthew 6 verse 21 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things that you spend your time thinking about, where you invest, that's a pretty good indication of where your heart is. Also, Christians who have inwardly made peace with the cosmos can't find time for the things of God. They can't find time to get equipped in order to help younger believers in their faith. They can't find time to spend with, with believers in community. And typically, when, the, when career demands call for their time, 
and it's in conflict with time with their family or people within God's community, career wins out. Also, you'll see that Christians who have inwardly made peace with the cosmos often section out certain parts of their lives where God isn't allowed to interfere. I mean, if God is indeed the ruler of all and has created us, and we've acknowledged that God is a part of our lives, then we should, we should be willing to submit every area of our lives to Him for input. And yet, there are phases that we go through where a lot of times we tell God, I don't want to listen to you about this particular area of my life. And so we kind of, you know, put our hand out and hold Him at bay. I also think that Christians who have inwardly made peace with the cosmos find that their thoughts revolve around the things of the world. They're obsessing over how to make more money or there's anxiety over how people perceive us. And so that's one way to sort of tell where our affections lie. You know, the thing to consider here is that the cosmos isn't designed to make us deny God. It's designed to sort of replace our affection for God. It's kind of like boiling a a frog by degrees. You know, if you throw a frog into a a pot of boiling water, it's going to jump right out. But if you put it in water that's, that's room temperature and you turn on the stove, it won't realize that it's boiling to death. And that's the way that the evil one, God's enemy, tries to orchestrate seduction, where he tries to, to slowly cause us to give over our affections to his values instead of to God. So James goes on, he says in verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So he calls them adulterous people. It's pretty strong language. But I think what he's doing here is he's trying to get his readers and us to sort of put ourselves in God's shoes. You know, from God's standpoint, he loves us. He, he has united himself to us. And so when we go after these other things, it's almost as if we're committing spiritual adultery. And he takes that personally. You know, put yourself in God's shoes. You know, a lot of you are probably dating. And, uh, you know, imagine, it's probably one of your worst nightmares. You know, imagine your, your significant other decided that they wanted to, you know, flirt with somebody else or to start dating somebody else on the side. I mean, that would be devastating to find out, right? And so, from God's standpoint, when we allow these values to suck away the the affection that we have for Him, He views that as a form of spiritual adultery. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Again, uh, it seems a little bit black and white, but you have to sort of put yourself in God's shoes. I mean, again, you know, let's say you're, you're talking to your friend and he's like, you know, I am so committed to the environment. I love the environment, right? And so one day as you're, as you're running or, you know, riding your bike along the bike path, you see him taking these old thermometers and he's snapping them in half and pouring the mercury into the, into the river. Okay? 
So you, you, you confront them and you say, hey, I thought you were really into the environment. Why are you pouring mercury into the river? I mean, clearly, there, there, there's one of two things that are happening here. On the one hand, he's either confused about what mercury does to fish, or he's just straight up lying to you, right? He doesn't care about the environment. Or, you know, imagine if, you know, your, your girlfriend finally tells you, baby, I love you. And you're like, wow, that's, that's a big milestone in our relationship. And you're elated by that. And, but then you find out that, you know, she is hanging out with her ex-boyfriend and occasionally making out with him, right? I mean, really, there are only two things that you can conclude from that. Either she is confused about what it means to love you or she's lying. Because friendship with your ex-boyfriend is enmity against me, right? <laughs> and so you got to put yourself in God's shoes. I mean, it's, it's like you, you say you love me. You say you want to have a relationship with me. You say you want to grow with me. And yet your behavior suggests something different. And it grieves God. He says in verse 5, do you, do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? You know, God has confronted his people throughout the generations, throughout human history, for going after other gods. And really, when you look at these things that we have set our affections upon that are not God, in a way, they're, they're, they're gods in themselves. They're idols. Look at what uh, he says in Jeremiah 3, verse 2 through 5 and 12 through 13. He says, You have prostituted yourself with many lovers, so why are you trying to come back to me? says the Lord. Look at the shrines on every hilltop. Is there any place that you have not been defiled by your adultery with other gods? You sit like a prostitute beside the road waiting for a customer. I mean, he uses this really vivid and strong language to confront his people for this spiritual adultery that they're committing. And yet in his mercy, he says, O Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again. For I am merciful. I don't want to be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against Him by worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you have refused to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so even though He confronts His people for their spiritual adultery, He's also eager to show them His mercy and grace. He says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's very comforting in, in this passage where James is using pretty fiery language to confront his audience and us about the spiritual adultery that we fall into from time to time. He says God is willing to give us grace. You know, the thing is that when God unites himself to us through Christ, when he forgives us through what Jesus has done, God forges a relationship with us that never ends. And so even when we go astray, even when we go after other, other things, God is always willing to accept us back. He knows that we're weak. He, he knows that we are prone to temptation. And yet he loves us. He encourages us to draw near to Him. 
He says in verse 7, he says, Submit yourself then to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. One of the passages that I love most is um, Luke 4, verse 3 through 13. And it gives us an example of how Jesus perfectly dealt with temptation when God's enemy was trying to tempt him in the wilderness. We're told the devil said to him as he was out there in the wilderness, If you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all the authority and splendor if you worship me and it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift up your hands so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. So he actually quotes scripture to Jesus. Jesus answered, it is said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until a more opportune time couple things that I want you to take notice of from this passage. First of all, the evil one's main tactic was to try to cause Jesus to rely on himself instead of his father. And that's the same tactic that he wants to use with us by throwing the world system at us. There's a lie, there's an accusation that he uses that God's not going to take care of you. You've got to take care of yourself. I mean, look, over the last few months and years, this thing that you have desired, that you've been aching for, God hasn't delivered on that. So you've got to take charge of your own life. You've got to take control. The second thing is, look at the things that he tempts him with. He says, turn this stone into bread. He says, exalt yourself. He says, throw yourself down and cause the angels to come and rescue you. That roughly correlates with the world system. Those three values that I mentioned earlier, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And so God's enemies' tactics have been the same throughout human history. And yet what's great about this example is that Jesus shows us a way out, a way to resist temptation. And it's not by us exerting uh, our power or, or arguing against Satan. Instead, it's that Jesus was able to quote what God says, his truth. In each case, he says, truly it is written, and then he quotes scripture. And so, in the realm of spiritual warfare, it's not about a power encounter. I know that a lot of like Hollywood depictions of Satan shows him as, you know, this, uh, this scary monster-like figure who's burning down churches from, with fireballs from hell and, you know, throwing people out of, like, windows. But, you know, really, when you look at Satan, he's very cunning in the way that he tries to seduce us. And so, really, it's not about a power encounter with God's enemy. It's a, spirit, it's a truth encounter. You know, I'm not really into fishing. But... Um, this apparently is a really great lure called the Rapala scatter wrap crank. Okay? 
And according to the product description, it says, baitfish skitter and scatter when they are pursued by predators. It's this erratic and evasive action that triggers the strike. Made from balsa, the scatter wrap crank consistently swims with an erratic and evasive, evasive sweeping action, perfectly mimicking vulnerable baitfish. First of all, I never knew that skittering and scattering was a technical definition <laughs> for how these things work. But, you know, the creators of this, of this lure are trying to create something that will mimic real fish. But the reality is the aim of these lures is to try to capture fish, right? So, I mean, imagine you're a fish, and you saw this Rapala in the water, right? And you think to yourself, wow, this is an amazing fish. And the designers of this lure have created it such that it looks like a fish, that it swims like a fish, and to hide the fact that it also has a hook on it as well. And so, you know, you look at this fish right here, and it's... it's obviously has this lure right in front of it. What, what do you think this fish is thinking? I don't know, right? I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, maybe he's saying, wow, this thing is shiny. It looks good to eat. Maybe it's saying, this would be really, really satisfying to put into my stomach. Maybe it's saying, I've been, I've been searching all day for food, and so I should, I should, I should eat this thing. And the moment that it snaps onto this lure, we know what happens. It's captured. And so in the same way, when we look at the way that the evil one tries to lure us, it's really his way of trying to capture us and to try to divert our attention away from the things of God. He says in verse 8, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And really, you can replace money with anything. You can't have both, which I know is pretty surprising to a lot of us. I know as a, a very young Christian, one of the things that I really struggled with was on the one hand, I desired to be effective for God. I wanted to live for Him, but at the same time, I wanted to be wealthy. And I remember somebody pointing out this passage to me, and it caused me a lot of trouble. But I, it, it put me to a decision to, to help me realize, you know what? I need to choose. Am I going to go after God and trust that He's going to provide for my needs? Or am I going to go after money and possessions and make God secondary in my life? Finally, in verse 9 and 10, James says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. And so, I think crisis can clarify our values. You might be sitting here and this whole topic might be making you feel very uncomfortable. Maybe you can resonate with some of the things I'm talking about. Maybe it's actually angering you to hear this. And, you know, the reason why God sometimes confronts us, you know, a lot of times we come to Bible studies like this or we, come, we want to listen to a sermon to feel 
built up and excited. But sometimes God has to show problems that we have in order to help us move forward in our spiritual progress. And so, God might be lovingly showing you issues that you're blind to in your life, that are, that are inhibiting your spiritual growth and development. So, how do we fend off the cosmos? I think, first of all, uh, you know, if we're going to try to fight off the cosmos, should we try to extract ourselves from the world system? No. I mean, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to try to escape like the Amish where we just basically disappear into nature and try to like, you know, keep ourselves unstained from the world? But, you know, the thing is, you could go anywhere in the world and still encounter the boastful pride of life, right? So this whole idea that we can escape the world system because of our own effort is flawed. We, we, we shouldn't try to do that. The way forward is what what John says in John 15, verse 19, where Jesus tells his disciples, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And so you cannot extract yourself from the world system. You need to be delivered through Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The way of escape is by starting a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I think the second thing is, if you find that your thinking is being influenced by the world system, if you're holding to these values and it's suffocating your ability to focus on the things of God and to grow with Him, then you should turn to God. And submit yourself to Him. We're told in Romans 12, verse 2, don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, it's inevitable. If you just sort of take the path of least resistance, the world is just going to stamp you out. Just like everybody else you see in the world. That you're going to become conformed to the world and its values. Instead, he says that you should submit yourself to God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of the things that happens is when you give your life over to God is He starts to change your desires and your values. It's amazing. The things that I thought were so important 20 years ago when I first started following God are the things that you know I look back on and I'm like, those things are not that important. The things that are really making me happy are the things that God has given to me. And finally, take delight in building God's kingdom. You know, as you live for God, as you serve Him, it brings incredible fulfillment and and significance in your life. Something that the world will never be able to offer you. Lord, I've seen a lot of uh, my friends who I've cared about over the years um, become ensnared by the world system and are no longer walking with you. And it grieves me uh, to see them do that. We realize that uh, none of us are in a position where we can feel confident that that will never happen to us. Uh, We know that we face constant temptation. We know that we face uh, these overtures from the world system. 
And uh, we pray that you would uh, gently remind us over the years that living for you and living for people are the things that matter most. And um, we thank you that you do reveal your truth to us. You say that uh, when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. But sometimes knowing the truth can be painful. And um, I pray that uh, if we're here tonight and we realize that we have been ensnared in the world system, I pray that we would turn to you and that we would repent. And uh, ultimately, we know for those of us who have never forged a relationship with you that one of the main tactics that your enemy tries to use is to try to distract us from ever asking that question, what happens to me after I die? And um, we thank you that, um, you know, people who uh, have never done that before were able to hear your message tonight, that they were able to hear your news of grace. And I pray that they would consider that further. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.